Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. College students have returned to classrooms as the Delta variant threatens to lengthen the COVID-19 pandemic. Faculty members at SUNY New Paltz, concerned about bringing the infection home, are butting heads with administrators. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas with more. Faculty with children at home too young to be vaccinated say they haven't been able to get permission to take their classes online. And some say they fear even asking because they are adjuncts with no job security. Melissa Young-Rock is an associate professor in the Department of Geography at New Paltz. There's a mix of vaccinated and unvaccinated people on our campus, um, students in our classrooms. And so therefore, with the surge of the Delta variant, a lot of faculty and staff are very worried about bringing this home. SUNY New Paltz responded to a request for comment via email, which says in part, Our students have made sacrifices to be here, based on a promise we made to them to return to in-person instruction, and their faith in us to fulfill that promise. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government, politics. I'm David Gistina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartok. Well, Alan, this week, new New York Governor Kathy Hochul convened a special session of the state legislature, calling lawmakers back to Albany on Wednesday. And one of the things they wanted to achieve and did was extending the state's eviction moratorium after the Supreme Court shot down the federal moratorium. The deadline is now extended to January 15th. In her remarks, Hochul initially talked about the idea that if we allowed this moratorium to expire, more people would end up being homeless. Here she is in liberal New York taking a fairly liberal position on this issue. Landlords, of course, some landlords are very small. They own one place and they rent it. What happens is evictions will be prohibited. Nevertheless, one wonders whether or not the money that is owed to those landlords will ever be paid. To me, this is a mixed bag. It's not a popular thing to say, but rent can't be free if you're going to have the economic system that you have in this country. Do you want to make sure that people are protected? Yes. Should the government pay the rents? Yeah, sure. You got the money, pay it. But don't say that the landlord, and there are many more tenants than landlords, that the landlords should take it on the chin and lose their way of life. Look, I'm not suggesting for a single moment that some people won't take advantage of this, but I do think it is government's job to protect and government's job to pay. Another part of the special session involved appointments. 
you and I talked for so long, even before former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo started to take a liking to the idea of legalizing marijuana, to now, where the drug has been legal and former Governor Cuomo dragged his feet and did not do the one thing that would get the legalization market underway and set up, which was appointing members of the Cannabis Control Board. That happened this week as New York Governor Hochul appointed two black leaders to run the control board. Chris Alexander of the Drug Policy Alliance will be executive director. Former Brooklyn Assemblywoman Tremaine Wright will chair the Office of Marijuana Management. The legislation, obviously, New York took its time, Alan, and we know that other states in the Northeast were eating their lunch in terms of reaping the financial benefits from the marijuana industry. But making sure that those profits, which we see the Cannabis Control Board will reinvest 40 percent of the tax on pot sales into hard hit communities in New York, that part of the legislation here, too, is also to level the playing field when it comes to those who were severely punished under the Rockefeller drug laws? Well, it makes sense. Those of us who have watched this know that people of color have been punished inordinately. People can sit on the top of their apartment on Fifth Avenue and smoke pot and get away with it, and always have been. In the meantime, the jails are filled with people of color for having smoked even pot, which is now basically legal. So the fact that Hochul is taking this approach is a good thing. We have a long way to go before we can make things right in this country for people of color who have suffered and been discriminated against, not only here, but in so many other ways. Jacob Allen, this week we saw that more appointees of the governors have stepped down in the short term, says the Times Union. That could render the Joint Commission on Public Ethics unable to take action against Cuomo. In the longer term, the departures could provide the ex-governor far less protection from possible sanction. Daniel Horwitz and James Daring, both gubernatorial appointees this week, announced their plans to resign. Nonetheless, we have seen virtually nothing accomplished with this ethics group. And you and I have talked about with the new governor coming in and some mumblings and rumblings about we need to bring ethics back to the Capitol. Well, we've heard that before. And is it possible? David, come on. This legislature is irate over Andrew Cuomo. But let me tell you, you got to go in the halls and just take a deep breath and things stink. The ethical standards, which they want to hold the governor to, apply to them and should apply to them. And I want to make sure that when they are taking a hard look at the way people get money for their campaigns, and whether if you're a committee chairman, that industry that the committee regulates pours money into your campaign. Government is for sale. By the way, the people know it. That's one of the things that is so interesting to me. People, when you say to them, what do you think of the legislature? They hold their noses. They know what's going on. And let me tell you, the irate sense of disappointment in this governor, the one who's just departed, Governor Cuomo, is appropriate. But take a look in the mirror, folks. Legislative Gazette Political Observer, Alan Chartalk. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. 
New research published by the New York State School Boards Association finds remote learning during the COVID-19 pandemic left the average student five months behind in math and four months behind in reading. The Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavula spoke with the association's executive director, Bob Schneider, about the study and how schools can address the learning loss. From my perspective and our perspective is we are approaching a new school year with some important challenges that we have to face as a school community, but we also have to look at it as a great opportunity. Um, The two major issues that we focused in on in this research report were addressing the learning loss and student well-being. And as far as the learning loss, as as you know, we've said this before in our conversations, nothing replaces the in classroom experience for a student and it's the learning side of it and it's the relationship side of it as far as their peers teachers other adults in that school that they can relate to um learning loss was was pretty heavy uh, as far as uh, the past year because of all the online virtual classroom experiences versus being in the classroom, we saw significant decreases in uh, in math and English. And there has now been an effort over the summer to try to close that learning loss gap. In addition to that gap, there was uh, disadvantaged students throughout the state that really lost a lot more in the educational realm. They didn't have the resources. They didn't have the access. And our school districts have been addressing that over the summer with certain summer school learning programs and activity programs to bring these students together for academic catch-up, if you will, and also social and emotional redevelopment so they can get back and and be social with people. And that's going to be a big challenge. Imagine what students went through this past year and a half regarding the pandemic. I, as an adult, had many moments uh, during that time of uncertainty and fear at times, you can imagine a child with a developing brain, what was going through their head. Now, prior to this pandemic, the New York State Council of School Superintendents identified mental health issues as one of their biggest issues. They saw more and more children entering those school building doors uh, with mental health issues. Add a a global pandemic where these students have seen job insecurity with their parents or guardians. They've seen death with COVID and all the other uh, things that they can't experience going to school, say, as a safe haven where they can get together with their friends and peers and other people. So you, you put that on top of it, and we've got an issue. We've got students coming back, and we have to make sure... A a student's well-being has to be focused in on before they can truly learn at an optimal uh, rate. So that's an important thing. As the school doors open this year, we need to take a look at all these students, make assessments, and make sure they can learn at the right level and their their well-being is intact. And that's a hard thing to do. It's not only educational, like I said, it's also the well-being of each student walking through that door. And in the report, tutoring within the K-12 through system was identified as a primary way to address this learning loss. And this figure stood out to me. Tutoring should be three to five times a week, totaling about 60 to 70 hours of instruction per school year. As it pertains to New York schools, are there enough teachers and staff to accomplish that? And do they have the time? Well, 
high dosage tutoring is really the term versus uh, lesser tutoring throughout the year. It, it really has to be the best way to do high dosage tutoring, tutoring is have it baked into uh, the academic year, having uh, teachers and paraprofessional being the point people on that, delivering that to those students. Uh, remember, um, we received foundation aid this year. Uh, we received the first third, uh, if you will, the ins first installment payment on a three-year plan. That gave school districts um, additional money that was due them to focus on certain academic areas. And one of those areas will be, obviously, the mental health side of it, which includes don't forget the, the tutoring. The tutoring will help those students with that learning loss gap get back up to speed, but it has to be high dosage. It has to be in the school, and it has to be consistent for that the 60, 70 hours that's recommended in the report. The funding is there, uh, finding the teachers and the paraprofessionals and, and baking it into the, the, uh, the daily uh, routine has to be done uh, by the, the local school districts. Uh, but I think they are up for the charge because they recognize this is so important, not only getting them caught up on the learning loss, but don't forget about that second issue, student well-being. High dosage tutoring creates relationships between an adult and a student, and that could make a big impact on a student who has trauma in their life, not outside of the school building and coming into that building. That's something that can really fortify a student and, and really get them to focus in on the, the education. A student has basic needs to learn, food, shelter, well-being is one of them. It's hard for a student to learn, um, you know, with certain things going on in their mind, mental health issues. That high dosage tutoring might help that out. That's a relational situation between that instructor and that student on a one-to-one -one basis, and that could be very helpful. A number of school districts still plan to offer some fully virtual learning for students and teachers who aren't returning to the classrooms for health reasons. Are you concerned at all that that will exacerbate the learning loss and the student well-being issues detailed in this report? Well, I know at least I've seen the capital region BOCES. Is the, it seems like the BOCES around the state are the ones that are the ones behind this, which makes sense. There are certain criteria that a, a parent or a guardian will request a student be uh, educated virtually. It could be health. It could be social, emotional, something like that. But the BOCES are the center point putting this program together, each local district will, will set that criteria of where a student will fit in and can do the virtual training. Some students do thrive in that virtual environment, but the majority of the students really need to get back into that school district and do the live instruction. Bob Schneider is the executive director of the New York State School Boards Association. Bob, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate it. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government, politics. I'm David Gustino. Communities across New York State are preparing their applications for the fifth round of Downtown Revitalization Initiative Grant Awards. Meanwhile, the North Country Regional Economic Development Council, which will nominate communities from the region for the grant, heard a presentation on the state's expectations during its latest virtual meeting. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley logged in. 
The North Country Regional Economic Development Council, or REDC, represents seven counties in New York's northern tier. Area communities have in the past applied and received the state funds, and more are planning to apply during the upcoming round. New York State Department of State Office of Planning, Development, and Community Infrastructure Director David Ashton provided an update on this year's DRI process and expectations. This year we're also focusing particularly on the value of compact, mixed-use development as part of our state's response to climate change. And the DRI can play a critical role in recovery from the impact of COVID-19 and help our downtowns become even stronger and resilient. In past years, winning communities received grants of $10 million. Ashton noted that this year, partly due to COVID recovery needs, the state plans to provide more DRI funding. DRI is it's bigger than it's ever been, twice as big, $200 million this year. So we're going to invest that $200 million in up to 20 additional downtowns statewide. As always, we are relying on you, the regional councils, to nominate participating communities based on the downtown's potential for transformation and the need for the type of investment that the DRI can provide. This year, we're asking the REDC to nominate either two downtowns to receive $10 million each or one downtown to receive an award of $20 million. Numerous communities across the region plan to apply for the latest award, including the town of Plattsburgh. Supervisor Michael Cashman notes the state's goals for this round of grants align with the planning and capital investments the town has undertaken. The town has been a host to sustained growth in industrial, commercial, residential sectors, and is also aware that this growth is creating additional demand for work for housing, transportation options, recreation opportunities, and cultural and community services. And the town of Plattsburgh adopted a smart growth plan for our town center. What we are looking to do is to leverage the work that has been done through good planning and find opportunities to execute that. So when the round five DRI application was released, it felt like the obvious next step for us. The Adirondack Village of Tupper Lake is also applying for a DRI grant. Community Development Director Melissa McManus says the DRI is intended to infuse targeted state investment when a critical mass of activity is occurring. We have a combination of about $40 million in private sector investment, millions in public sector investment that are in progress at this point. We have another $40 million plus in projects that we are proposing. And so um, we have our projects, we have our investment, we have a vision that we've been working on and a strategic plan for years. We're on the cusp, right? The opportunities are emerging, but we need a boost. And that's what we're asking the state to do, a very targeted, focused, strategic boost to get us over the finish line. Tupper Lake's plan will be posted online September 1st. The town of Plattsburgh is planning a public meeting on its application September 1st at Town Hall. The city of Plattsburgh, which is separate from the town, was awarded $10 million in the first round of DRI grants. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Well, a new candidate has entered the race for New York's 21st Congressional District. Republican Lonnie Coons is a retired combat veteran who served 20 years in the Army and now drives a big rig after settling down in Fort Drum. Coons is campaigning from the cabin of his 18-wheeler and is making stops across upstate New York. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard recently found Coons attending a rally in Saratoga Springs to protest a canceled event organized by the Saratoga County Republican Committee and promoted by incumbent Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik and neighboring Wilton. Lucas Willard chatted with Lonnie Coons next to his idling truck. Well, my name is Lonnie Coons. Uh, I'm a country boy. was born and raised in the country of Michigan, milking cows, mowing grass. Uh, I joined the Army, uh, served for 20 years and 11 days as an airborne infantryman. Uh, upon retirement, I let my wife decide where we wanted to go, and she chose good old Fort Drum area. So uh, we bought a house in Fort Drum, and I'm going to be buried in the backyard someday. Uh, now I drive semi-truck, and I work. That's all I know how to do is work. And so, this is your truck right here? This is my truck. And you're, are you currently on the road right now? Yes. Okay, you are. I got a load to bring me to Saratoga just so I could be here for this event. So this event and what we're, what just concluded was kind of a counter event to something that was organized by the county GOP yes. to, to host Scott Pressler, who yes. is a, a, a Republican uh, activist who's very controversial Correct. for his, his views on the election, among other things. Um, so why did you consider it important to come all this way to Saratoga Springs to uh, attend this rally? Mainly because while I agree with the right to protest, January 6th got out of hand. And at that point, it was no longer a protest. and It, it defied everything that was trying to be said about what people believe about the election. That and this Mr. Pressler guy, I, I fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you know, I stood side by side in battles with Iraqis and Afghanis, the Muslim community in general. And I can't stand the hate mongering. Uh, you know, I, I have friends in country that are still trying to get out. Um, Terps and people that we, interpreters, excuse me, that we need to protect. They put their lives on the line and their families are being murdered because they supported us. Elise Stefanik is now the number three House Republican, and uh, I think it's safe to say this is an uphill battle for you in this election going in uh, against a very well-known Republican. Uh, so um, why is this something that you, you're, you're not afraid to take on? Why is this something you think you can do? Well, no is a four-letter word to me. Uh, again, 20 years in the Army, you know, defeat's not something I can accept. Um, I can't stand the fact that people like Elise and these, these career politicians and millionaires represent us average workers, the guys who we don't have the choice to not go to work. I don't go to work, I don't put food on the table. Elise Stefanik and all of her cronies don't understand that. They can claim it all they want, they can claim to be blue collar, they don't understand it. They've never worked a day in their life. So that's why I'm running against the machine. As a Republican, have you ever voted for Elise Stefanik before? I did, last election in fact. What do you think of the 2020 presidential election? I believe that there's enough information that a serious inquiry should have been done. And I think had that been done, support for Joe Biden could be higher. Because of the way that the whole investigation independently was done on multiple sides, no one can believe the results. And I think that's unfair to both Joe Biden and to Donald Trump. A full investigation, I could fully support whoever they come out and say one. Uh, do you think that there's a lot of people like you in the district, uh, individuals who were uh, one supporters either of the current congresswoman or of the National Republican Party who are falling away in part because of January 6th. More than the Republican Party or at least Fonica let you know. Uh, I, I go out every weekend handing out free lemonades and free coffees in these towns and 
the number of people that tell me that they are so glad someone's running against the lease is astounding. There's more for support for somebody to run against her than, than they are going to admit. Do you have main policy items that you're running your campaign on at this point? I mean, my website, I have, I believe in action, not just words. Uh, I can't stand it when politicians run on ideas. No offense against any of the other people running in this district right now, but if you go to the website, they literally say I'm running because of this. Whereas I have 29 points that I actually have actionable plans that I want to walk in day one and just take the floor. And what, say, what's number one on your list of the 29? Voter reform. It, we've got to do something about voter reform, making it so everyone can vote. We can put a Mars rover and talk to it instantaneously, planets away, but we can't do electronic voting. There's got to be a way that we can do this safely and securely so that everyone's voice can be heard and our votes count. Have you visited with other uh, county chairs yet or local GOP committees? I have spoken to some on the phone. I have spoken to some via email. For the most part, I'm being told that they have to back Elise because she, obviously being a powerful position she's in, they can't turn her back, their backs on her. So what is the path going to look like for you for 2022 now? Are you going to be doing more of these appearances? Is, as uh, many as I can do. Yeah. I want to get my feet on the ground as much as possible. Uh, again, I'm an infantry guy. Boots on the ground is the rule. Face-to-face -face interaction, and the people love it. I'm, I go to these little dinky towns, and they're like, Elise Stefanik's never even been here. She doesn't even know where it is and I'm out there just handing out free lemonades. When I do it, it's free. I mean, I literally have to wear a t-shirt that says free because people don't understand what I'm not trying to give them anything. Here's a card, here's a lemonade. So, but no, I, I plan on uh, the rest of this year, every Saturday until Christmas, I will be in a different town in North Country handing out lemonade until it gets too cold and then coffee and hot chocolate for free on some street corner someplace. And after that, uh, right after the new year, I plan to hopefully get off the road on the truck and do this full time. But of course, unfortunately to run a race, it costs money and that's what I don't have. One last question. Did you support uh, Donald Trump in 2020 or did you, or would you tell me who you voted for? I voted for Donald Trump for the reason that unfortunately I, I don't believe that Joe Biden is mentally capable of the job right now. Unfortunately, some of his slip ups, some of the things, not to mention, we have this whole cancel culture, the Me Too movement, and some of the things he said, if you're not, if, if you don't know what race you are, you're not Democrat, things like that, I, I just can't support that. And unfortunately, Donald Trump wasn't a better answer either, but I had to look at my options and it was more 51% one way and 49% the other. It's the same problem we had in the last election with Hillary Clinton. They, I don't know how to say this nicely, but you know, they gave us two choices out of 350 million people in this country that nobody wanted. So we chose the better of two evils on both the last two elections, and that's, that's sad. 350 million people, we can pick somebody that's, that's worthy. Did you regret your vote after January 6th? I didn't regret my vote after January 6th. I was very upset with the people who carried out the physical insurrection. Again, we have the right to protest, and that's fine. But at the point that it turned violent and they started breaking the law by entering the Capitol building, I, I couldn't support that anymore. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard, speaking with Lonnie Coons, who's running against Representative Lee Stefanik, a fellow Republican in New York's 21st Congressional District. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2136. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.